you have a Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 11, and we're going to make an attempt to finish this chapter, chapter 11, that we've been in for quite some time, and I hope that you'll be encouraged today as we uh, kind of finish this, uh, this chapter. It'll be a landmark uh, closure for us, and then and during the new year, we're going to come back to John, and we'll be kicking off in John chapter 12, John chapter 12. So the title of the sermon this morning is The Same Son that melts the wax, hardens the clay. John chapter 11, and we'll be looking at verses 45 through 57. Here's what the apostle John writes. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one people the children of God who were scattered abroad. And from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they may arrest him. Father, we pray for your wisdom as we look at your word this morning to better understand what it is going on here in this plot to kill Jesus. And so, God, I pray that as we consider what we've learned from Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and what we'll see this morning in the aftermath of that incredible miracle, that you would continue to enlighten us and enable us to see Christ in all of his glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a small plane carrying four passengers that shook violently as it began to lose control. Dropping in altitude, the landing gear was ripped out from beneath the plane as it skimmed the treetops below. You could hear men screaming, mingled with the loud sound of crushing metal piercing the air. Then there was silence, blood Glass and snow were all scattered throughout what used to be the cockpit of a small private plane. As Mike and Ed pulled themselves from the wreckage, they discovered that two of their friends did not survive the crash. Mike and Ed had no idea how this crash would greatly impact the rest of their lives. The crash occurred in December of 1981, and they were stranded somewhere on Mount McKinley, in Alaska. Even though both men were experienced mountain climbers with adequate gear, their chances of survival 
would be minimal. After five freezing days, a rescue party finally made it to their, res- to their rescue. Mike lost all of his toes and five fingers. Ed lost both of his feet. 17 years later, in 1998, Dateline ran a story on these two men. And it was amazing to see how differently these two men responded to this horrendous accident. They were both exposed to the same tragedy, and yet their responses couldn't have been more different. Mike appeared to be very bitter and angry. He even attempted to sue the very people that tried to rescue him. Ed, on the other hand, seemed happy to be alive, and he learned to accept the losses that life dealt him and has moved on. In fact, with his artificial legs, he even tried to climb the very mountain that almost took his life. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. This quote is attributed to the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And the attitude with which we approach a problem will determine the effect it will have upon us. Similar experiences can impact people in opposite ways. Problems in life will either soften you and help you conform to God's will, or they will harden you with bitterness and anger. A difficult experience will either make you more appreciative of God or make you more hostile towards Him. This is true not only of difficult experiences, but also of great blessings. You can either respond to a great gift with humility or with pride. A blessing can help you look to God with warm gratitude or consider the blessing to be something of chance or something that you've worked hard for and therefore you deserve. Life is a gift from God, and some people use their lives to glorify God while others use their lives to deny the existence of God. And Spurgeon reminds us of how the same gospel has the power to soften a heart or to harden it. In one of his sermons, he stated this, quote, The gospel has a wonderfully hardening power over those who reject it. The sun shines out of the heavens upon wax and softens it, but at the same time it shines upon clay and hardens it. The sunlight of the gospel shining upon hearers either melts them into repentance or else hardens them into greater stubbornness. You cannot be hearers of the gospel without its having some effect upon you. Close quote. Well, this is very true, isn't it? When we read about the love of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for sinners, you either are drawn to him or in your heart melts or in your own stubborn way, your heart is hardened to the Lord of life. The same gospel message, but you either love him or you hate him. For the Bible says you cannot be lukewarm. This is the way that the Jews responded to the fact that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Some of the Jews saw what Jesus did and they believed upon him while others wanted to put him to death. Some were amazed and after four days in the grave that Jesus called Lazarus forth, they couldn't believe it. 
while others were disgusted with Jesus for doing another one of his miracles that would take the people's attention off of the religious leaders and place it on the Son of God. How you respond to Jesus, the Son of God, will show whether your heart is more like softening wax or more like hardening clay. When you think about the God of the Bible, do you respond in awe or in anger? When you think about the exclusive means of salvation coming through Christ alone, does that make you more desirous of him or more disgusted with him? And when you think about the fact that God is sovereign over all things, including good and evil, does that make you want to worship the Lord or to whine against his power and his wisdom? Well, this morning, I want us to look at two definitive responses to the resurrection of Lazarus, and then we'll see a third option as well, all right? The first major response we see of the Jews that witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus is the melting of the wax, and we see that there in verse 45, where it says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. As you might remember, John 11 gives us the last of seven signs recorded in this gospel. And each one of these signs are miracles, but they are more than miracles. They are specific signs that Christ does that points to his divinity. And these seven signs point to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you remember, the whole point of the Gospel of John is for us to see Jesus just as that. At the end of John 20, verses 30 and 31, we read, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so what we know from these verses and the other Gospels is that Jesus did much more than seven signs, but these specific signs recorded in John point us to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and it shows us with clarity that Jesus is the Son of God. And the seven signs pointing to Christ and to him being the Son of God recorded in this gospel are the turning of water into wine, the healing of the royal official's son at Capernaum, the healing of the paralytic in Bethesda, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, the healing of the man born blind, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And each one of these seven miracles point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And since he is the Son of God, we are to believe in his name. And to believe in his name means that we are to believe in who he is. We are to believe in what he does. We are to believe in what he teaches in the Bible. We are to believe in him as the prophet that Moses talked about. And we're to believe in him as our high priest. And we are to believe in him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. John 11 also brings us to the fifth of the seven I am statements, where Jesus uses the words I am to purposefully show us that he is one with the Father, that he is one with Yahweh, that Jesus was the Word, and he was with God in the beginning, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we have the seven signs, Lazarus raised from the dead is the seventh, the, the, fi- 
the seven I am statements, and the fifth one is also here in John uh, chapter 11, where Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. You might remember, again, when Martha was struggling to understand why Jesus didn't come sooner to help her sick brother, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. And, and Jesus used these words to comfort Martha for her loss, and he also used these words to show us more, more of his character and more of his power, more of his ability. And not only can Jesus provide bread, not only does he give light, not only is he the door, not only is he the good shepherd, but he is the resurrection and the life. And that means for those of us who are in Christ this morning, there is no death. For those of us who are in Christ, that we can know that we will not face judgment. For those of us who are in Christ, there's no punishment. In Jesus, he's made all things new. In Jesus, you can be born again. In Jesus, you are made alive. In Jesus, your heart of stone is softened to become a heart of flesh. And so you may ask, how exactly does that happen? How does the wax soften? How does the sun melt the wax? And so let me draw your attention this morning to the three verbs that we see in verse, uh, verse 45, and we'll look at them uh, one at a time. The first blank in your outline, if you are taking notes, is it's those who came to Jesus. Again, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary. So let's talk about those who came to Jesus. Uh, the first way to have a heart of stone become soft is to simply come to where Jesus is. And after Lazarus had died, many Jews came. Being only a short distance from Jerusalem, many Jews came to comfort Mary and Martha. In fact, John eleven nineteen says, And many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so we know that the, the Jews may not have known exactly what to expect, but they did want to pay their respects to the family. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. And then Jesus also called for Mary to come, and Mary came to talk with Jesus. And when Mary came, the Jews who saw her get up and walk out to where she was going went and followed her. And initially, they just kind of wanted to be with her, thinking she was going out to the tomb to cry. But then they realized she was having a conversation with Jesus. And they found themselves standing in the presence of Almighty God. They found themselves standing in the presence of Jesus. And being in the presence of Jesus changes a person. Being in the presence of Jesus changes who you are. It has an impact on your very being. For as long as I can remember, I've always been drawn to godly men. Even as a kid growing up, I was enamored a little bit with the pastor and the preacher. And maybe in your lives, you've had uh, godly men and women who have been your heroes in the faith. And I've had the privilege of coming into contact with many men, as many of you probably have, like Pastor John MacArthur and John Piper at different conferences that I've been to, and Al Mohler and Mark Dever and Ligon Duncan and C.J. Mahaney and Wayne Grudem and James White, uh, Steve Lawson. Uh, these are heroes of, of mine, and, and when you come into contact with them, it just, it's just interesting to get in their presence. You kind of wonder if something special may happen. Maybe they want to have a conversation with you, or they want to ask you to preach in their pulpit. Yeah, right, yeah. You know, but, you know, the idea is it's just, it, it's just we're enamored sometimes with that. I'm just thinking, how, how much greater would it be to be in the presence of Christ? 
just to be in his presence, just to walk up. They're walking with Mary. All of a sudden, she's there talking with Jesus. Can you imagine watching him gently comfort Mary and Martha? Can you imagine being in his presence and just listening to him as he claims to be the resurrection and the life? Can you imagine witnessing the miracle at the tomb of Lazarus? If you want to have your heart softened, you need to be close to Jesus. And wherever he is is where you need to be. And he's right here in the Bible. He is the living word. He is a friend of sinners. He is a very present help in a time of trouble. He is available to all who call upon him. He is accessible. And he is ready and waiting to reveal himself to you every moment of every day. If you want to have your hard heart soften, you need to read the Bible because it's as you read the Word of God and as you look at the person of Christ that the wax begins to melt. It's James 4, 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. You're struggling a little bit in your Christian walk? You feel like your heart's getting a little calloused? Come, meet with the Savior. Spend time in His Word. Let the nearness of God be your good. Another way that the sun melts the wax is simply to observe what Jesus does. Look in the middle of verse 45. Your next blank says, those who saw what Jesus did. So this crowd of Jews, they first come with Mary, and then they saw Jesus when they had seen what he did. It's not good enough just to be in his presence. We need to watch his every move. We need to listen to his every word. We need to observe every part of his life. Uh, what did Jesus do in their presence? Well, Jesus comforted Mary and Martha. Jesus wept. Jesus wanted to know where they had laid Lazarus. Jesus approached the tomb. Jesus had them take the stone away. Jesus ignored the impossible. Jesus didn't care about the stench. He spoke to a dead man, and Jesus made him alive, and Jesus ordered Lazarus out of the grave, and he told them to unbind Lazarus and let him go. And so if you want your heart to be softened today, I would just remind you, it's a real simple. You come to Jesus and you look to him, listen to his every word, learn by watching his life. Don't think that you know it all. I mean, I'm tired of so many people sometimes saying they already know everything about Jesus. You know, you try to evangelize somebody, already know about Jesus. You try to teach a kid a story out of the Bible, daddy already knew that. Oh, did you really? Well, did you know this? You know, because sometimes we need to go a little deeper and a little broader because we don't know everything about Jesus. If we thought we knew everything about Jesus, we could just close the Bible and never read it again. But because it's the living word, every time I read a gospel, every time I read a verse of scripture, there's new light that's being sh shown into our hearts, right? And so we've got to realize that, that if we really know and are watching Jesus, we're always intrigued. Uh, we, we are always interested in learning more. If the subject is Jesus, it ought to make you want to lean in and listen a little more carefully to every sermon, like you're watching a close ball game. You would want to study the Bible like you would study Amazon Prime this time of year to find the perfect gift, the perfect product, right? If you're really interested in seeing Jesus, you would stay glued to the Word of God like we stay glued to the TV set during a presidential election, it's like we, we got to be captivated by Christ. And, 
You know, there, there was one believer who really did lean in and observe Jesus in a way that changed him forever, and that was the Roman centurion. Remember that story about the Roman soldier who no doubt had an, a pagan upbringing? This Roman soldier was in the place of power over the Jews, and he was a leader of a hundred men. He, he had a good job. He probably had excellent pay. Uh, but when this man saw how Jesus suffered and died, it had an impact on him. Uh, the centurion saw how Jesus was mocked and how Jesus was ridiculed. And the centurion saw how Jesus was beaten and how he was bruised. And he may have even given the orders for the soldiers to nail Jesus to the cross. But there was something different as he observed Christ that day. Something different about this crucifixion. There was no struggle. There was no fighting back. There was no fear in the eyes of our Lord. There seemed to be a comfort and a peace on his countenance, even as they raised the cross up from the earth. And then there were the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross that the centurion might have even overheard, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. To the thief next to him, Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. To his mother, Jesus said of John, Behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, I thirst. Jesus said, It is finished. And when he had breathed his last, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And after witnessing and observing everything that Jesus did and everything that he said, Mark 15, 39 records the impact that it made upon the centurion. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. What I'm saying is we need to come into Christ's presence. We need to listen to his words. We need to observe his life. And then there's a third verb there in verse 45 that can help soften the wax of your heart this morning. It's those who believed in who Jesus was. Look at the end of verse 45. When they had come with Mary, seen what he did, they believed in him. This verse tells us that many believed in him. Are you looking to Jesus? Are you watching him? Have you seen what he has done? Then are you also believing in him? Or earlier in this gospel of John 2.23, we read, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now, it's, it's never the signs that save you. It's the Savior. But signs point to the Savior. And the signs are used as part of the proof of the power of God. And many of the signs are the fulfillment of prophecy. And the signs show us that Jesus is the Son of God. And there are times when Jesus supposedly, uh, certain Jews supposedly believed in Jesus, but Jesus is looking for genuine conversion rather than enthusiasm for the spectacular. Nevertheless, the faith of these individuals here in this passage of John eleven forty five 45 seems to be authentic. It is even contrasted with those who did not believe in the very next verse. 
It seems that the Jewish authorities are concerned about the fact that many of these Jews are truly believing in the Lord Jesus, and we read about that in verse 48. And so what I'm saying is in this particular context, these particular Jews, many are believing for real. And most of this is, is pointing us to this person of Christ, that he's having an effect on these individuals. It's a reminder, though, that it's not enough to come. It's not enough to see. You must believe. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And you must believe that He was perfect and that He never sinned. You must believe that He died on a cross. You must believe that He was raised from the dead. And you must believe He did that for your sins. And so can I encourage you today that it's not enough for you to come to church and it's not enough for you to do nice things for people. And it's not enough for you to be a good person. And it's not enough for you to even love Christmas. You must love the Christ of Christmas. Right? You've you got to come to Christ. You have to believe in Him. It's Romans 10, 9 and 10 that tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. That you shall be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified, and it's with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. You want to have the wax melt today? You've got to come to Christ. You've got to look at all that He's done. You've got to read the Word, and you've got to believe in Him. And so I'm praying this morning that God would soften you this very day. I pray that the Son of God would wake you up. I pray that Jesus would melt the wax so that he would save you and shape you into the man or the woman that he's called you to be. But it's the same sun that melts the wax that also hardens the clay. And so we've seen the melting of the wax in verse 45. Let's now look at verses 46 to 54. We'll see the hardening of the clay. Your next blank says, those who went away from Jesus. You see, some came near to him while others ran away from him. In verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and they told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so while some close to Jesus uh, were being converted and believing in him, others who came to Jesus turned and ran in the other direction. Now, where did they run to? They ran to the Pharisees, and they told them what Jesus had done, possibly in amazement, but more likely they were looking for a political controversy. These were spiritual tattletales, they were wanting to get Jesus into trouble. They were looking to the establishment to tell them what to do. They were looking at the response of the authorities because the Pharisees had been having these ongoing public debates with Jesus. And things had been heating up for some time, and now something was going to have to be done. And so the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered together a council. We know that council to be the Sanhedrin it's a group of, of Jews that were leading the nation. It was made up almost entirely of chief priests who were Sadducees. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men plus the reigning high priest, and it was the ruling body of Israel. These religious leaders had wide-ranging authority in civil and criminal matters. The Romans were happy to let them take care of 
various controversies within the Jewish nation. They would let them take care of almost anything except capital punishment. And if there was a capital punishment case, then the governors of Rome would have to step in. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had their own theological arguments. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in any inspired writings outside of the Pentateuch. The Pharisees believed in a salvation based on works and keeping the law. They had their differences and they argued and they fought like cats and dogs, but they came together to deal with a common enemy. When they came together in this council, they're trying to decide, what do we do with Jesus? They were not seeking the truth. They were not trying to decide on how to protect the Jewish nation uh, from Jesus. They, they believed, uh, they, were, they were trying to decide how to protect the nation. They thought Jesus was a bad guy. They thought he was a false teacher. They thought he had committed the sin of blasphemy. It's interesting to note that these unbelievers did not deny the signs in which Jesus had performed. Nowhere in the Bible do we read the fact, well, you didn't really do that. They did not argue against the facts, but just how to interpret the facts. The miracles that Jesus had done were undeniable. They were not done in secret, but they were done in the public eye. The miracles didn't affect a few people, but they affected thousands of people where Jesus was doing these signs and they heard him claiming to be the Son of God. J.C. Ryle comments on this, this idea that they didn't really argue about the authenticity of the miracles. He writes this, quote, This is a marvelous admission. Even our Lord's worst enemies confess that our Lord did miracles and many miracles. Can we doubt that they would have denied the truth of his miracles if they could? But they do not seem to have attempted it. They were too thoroughly witnessed for them to dare to deny them. How, in the face of this fact, modern infidels and skeptics can talk of our Lord's miracles as being impostures and delusions, they would do well to explain. If the Pharisees, who lived in our Lord's time and who moved heaven and earth to oppose his progress, never dared to dispute the fact that he worked miracles, it is absurd to begin denying his miracles now after 18 centuries have passed away. You know what Ryle is saying? If none of the people who live there argued about these miracles, why do we deny them today? The Bible tells us that we are without excuse to believe that there is a God. Romans 1:18. for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The Bible's teaching us all mankind knows there's a God and we just don't want to admit it. We want to deny it for what can be known about God is plain to them. How is it plain to them? For God has shown it to them through creation. Right? It's through his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Romans 1, 18 through 20 are saying that God can be known from creation and from your conscience. The fact you were created in the image of God, the fact that you know a general basis for right or wrong shows that there is a creator who designed you to implement in you a, a moral compass of what's right and wrong that can only be really understood 
once someone comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see back in this passage, the Sanhedrin knew that. They knew that there was a God. They knew that there was a Messiah who was coming, and they have a decision to make. And the decision they have to make is, is it Jesus? Is Jesus the Messiah or is he not? Was the Messiah uh, the Christ or was he a false teacher? And so they could let Jesus go and continue to do what he was doing, or they could put a stop to it. And if they let Jesus go on, they feared that everyone would believe in him. And this would cause such an uproar, they feared, that the Romans who were ruling over the Jews and ruling over the Sanhedrin would take away their privileged position of leadership and possibly even destroy the nation. Notice in this council, as they're talking about this, they are not examining the scriptures. There's no reference to the Old Testament that they said, let's study the Bible and see what the scriptures tell us to do. They are not consulting with Abraham or with Moses or with Isaiah, who all pointed directly to Jesus. They're not even spending any time in prayer like Elijah, David, and Hezekiah did when they were desperate for direction from God. No, they were ready to make a pragmatic and expedient decision that would not rock the boat and would allow things to continue as usual. My friends, sometimes the worst decision that you could make would be to continue with the status quo. Sometimes the worst decision is the easiest decision. Sometimes the worst decision is to do what makes sense as far as human wisdom is concerned. But God has called us to follow him. And God has called us to trust in him. God has called us to consult his word and to spend time on our knees and to walk in obedience. And if this means uprooting your family and uprooting your life and uprooting your job, we are not here to live a a comfortable life. We're here to live a radical life. And we're not here to stay quiet, but we're here to speak up. And we're not here to bow down to the culture, but we're here to address the culture with the wisdom and the love of Christ. And so these so-called spiritual leaders of Israel have an opportunity to make a wholesale change in their lives and become believers and disciples of Christ. But instead, they choose to stay away from Jesus and they chose to ignore the teaching of Jesus and they choose to have Jesus removed from their lives forever. The same sign that melts the wax hardens the clay. These chief priests and Pharisees are showing that they had very hard hearts. Not only did they go away from Jesus, but some of these Jews were blind. Your next blank, they are those who were blind to what Jesus would do. Look at verses 49 through 52, where we read, Then one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the children of God who are scattered abroad. Those who are blind to what Jesus would do. Caiaphas had been appointed high priest in AD 18 by a Roman prefect. He served in that position until he was removed in AD 36. 
He was the son-in-law of Annas, who was a previous high priest. And this position of high priest was a very political position that often ran in the families of those with means or aristocratic backgrounds. Theoretically, a, a high priest could serve for life. And during politically charged times, the Romans could remove any high priest at any time for any reason. Therefore, Caiaphas just covets his position. He wants to stay in power. He's concerned about losing his job. And so he felt like it was either Jesus has to go or he's going to lose his job because the uproar of the crowd is beginning to build momentum. All Caiaphas was concerned about was keeping Pax Romana, right? The idea of the peace of Rome. And Caiaphas didn't want to upset the apple cart and he didn't want to appear unable to handle a potentially provocative situation. And so Caiaphas speaks up in the middle of this council, and he states the matter rather clearly in verse 50. Look at it again. He says, it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. When Caiaphas spoke these words, he was saying, in effect, that it is better for Jesus, who is one man, to die than for the whole nation to be destroyed by Rome. He's saying it's better to sacrifice one life than the life of the nation of Israel. Caiaphas is speaking out of his unbelief. He's speaking out of pragmatism. He's speaking out of ignorance. He's speaking out of efficiency. He's speaking out of human wisdom. Verse 51 says, he did not say this of his own accord, meaning that while Caiaphas was speaking according to his own wisdom, God did something extraordinary. God did something that would, that would really make, it under, make us understand that it's really God the Holy Spirit superintending Caiaphas' speech to be recorded in the Bible as an actual prophecy that Jesus would die for the nation. Caiaphas kind of means it one way, but God, the Holy Spirit, ordained his speech to be exactly that, meaning something entirely different. I believe the principle of Proverbs 19.21 applies here. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but, it's, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. In other words, man kind of makes up his mind and does what he wants, says what he wants, thinks what he thinks, but the purpose of the Lord will stand. Caiaphas may have had one plan in his own mind, but God's purposes will prevail. And this is not the only time God would use something like this to accomplish his purposes. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Genesis 50, 20. God used Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. God empowered Cyrus to accomplish his purposes. God used a donkey to confront Balaam. Psalm 2 talks about why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So that psalm, a messianic psalm, talking about the leaders of the nations, they come together and they counsel together and they try to get rid of Christ. But how does God respond to that? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
In other words, Psalm 2 is saying the wicked leaders in the nations will do what they can to operate against the Lord, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at the world's greatest leaders, and the Lord has installed his son as king on Zion, meaning that Jesus reigns, that Jesus is in control, that Jesus is accomplishing all that the Father has sent him to do. And so Caiaphas will have to learn the lesson that God sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Never was there more short-sighted and erring judgment than Caiaphas's plan to spare the nation at the expense of Jesus. And as the Jews rushed madly on the path that Caiaphas set forth that they would kill Jesus, the very thing that they feared came to pass. They did not leave Jesus alone, but instead they crucified him. And what happened next a few years later? The very calamity that they dreaded took place. The Roman armies did come, and they did destroy Jerusalem, and they burned the temple, and they carried the nation away into captivity. For those of you who know church history, do I need to remind you this morning of similar things that have happened in the history of Christ's church? When they when the world mounts its attack against the church, the Roman emperors persecuted the Christians in the first three centuries. And though the world uh, wanted to get rid of them, Christianity continued. The message of the gospel spread. The blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. During the English Reformation, under Bloody Mary, the Protestant church grew and grew. Many of uh, the Christian pilgrims from Europe left that place to come to America to find freedom and worship and evangelicalism has exploded. The underground church in China is said to possibly be the largest ethnic group of believers in the world. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so verse 52 points us to the fact that Jesus died not only for the Jews, but he also died for the Greeks or the Gentiles. Verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. The word for nation there is the word ethnos, meaning that Jesus didn't die for one ethnicity, but he died for all ethnicities. Jesus has already told us this in John 10, 16, where he says, I have come for other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. It's Revelation chapter 5 where we read, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so we see Caiaphas would not be able to stop Jesus. Caiaphas was a rude and a sly manipulator. He was an opportunist. He did not know the meaning of fairness or justice. He was an evil man bent on having his own way. And he did not shrink away from shedding innocent blood. And the Jewish historian Josephus even tells us that Caiaphas was a hypocrite. And in the final trial, Caiaphas was filled with inner glee because he had found what he considered to be the grounds for Christ's condemnation. Caiaphas tore his priestly robe as if overcome by profound sorrow, while his heart rejoiced. So if you're here today and your heart 
is growing hard towards the gospel or toward God or toward a life of total obedience, let me encourage you that God can open your eyes. Don't grow hard. Don't freeze up. Don't become a Grinch this Christmas, right? Stay away from Scrooge, right? Pour out your heart to the Lord and have him change you and regenerate you and bring you into a soft place where you can know Christ as Lord. And so we see these Jews, they, they went away from Jesus. They're blind to who he is and what he came to do. And then last blank there says, those who planned to put Jesus to death. Verses 53, 54, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. And so at this point, they are fully determined to put Jesus to death. This animosity had been growing throughout Jesus's ministry, and now their hearts just keep getting harder. Their consciences were seared. Their sin kept getting greater. Their pride kept dominating their lives. They're willing to do whatever it takes to get Jesus out of their lives. This group of religious leaders began to work like the mafia. I mean, they invented organized crime. They would stop at nothing to see this evil plan carried out. And according to verse 54, Jesus decided to no longer be in public. He wanted to wait with his disciples a few miles away in Ephraim, and he's waiting for the right timing when the Passover would hit, that he would come and be the Passover lamb. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. We see some have softened and believe in Jesus, while others have become harder and harder and harder, and they wanted to kill Jesus. I wonder what kind of things have happened in your life to either soften you or harden you. Was it a divorce? Was it the loss of a child? Was it being fired from your job? Was it being diagnosed with a serious illness? Was it receiving news of a horrible accident? The death of a loved one? Life is full of great blessings and great difficulties. And the question is, will you respond in faith or in fear? Will you grow closer to God or be pushed further away from him? Will you be all the more dependent on him or will you be defiant towards him? Well, a third and final group that we see here in this last couple of verses are the undecided. The undecided. Some believed in him, verse 45. Some were definitely opposed to him, verses 46 to 54. But here in 55 to 57, we see a group that's maybe still undecided. So let me ask you a couple of questions as we look at this group. The first blank is this. Will you be purified Will you be purified? Verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many of them went up from the country of Jerusalem before the, they went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Well, the Passover was one of those three annual feasts of the Jews, and it was co to commemorate when the death angel passed over the Jewish homes who had the, blo the, the blood smeared over the, the doorpost of their house so that on the night of the death angel, they would be spared. This was the 10th plague in Egypt, and it was to be a reminder that death is the consequence of sin, and only God can deliver you through the blood of Christ. And so the Passover 
was to remember what Christ had done, and it was supposed to remember what God had done, and it was to look forward to Christ, whose blood alone would be able to save Jews or any person from their sin. And when the Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they would seek to purify themselves. And so they would bring a lamb or purchase one in Jerusalem. And the lamb was to be sacrificed to cover their sins and the sins of their family. And purification was to take place through even the Jews stripping off their outer clothing and descending into a mikveh or a Jewish baptistry and then ascending out of the mikveh in a new clean robe. And then they were ready to ascend the southern steps of the Temple Mount, quoting the Psalms of Ascents. Well, how ironic is this that while the everyday Jew was seeking to purify himself, these priests, their supposed leaders, were seeking to kill the one who purifies. This was the time to get right with God, not the time to kill the Son of God. This was the time to look for the Messiah, not to murder him. So we see that these Jews are seeking to purify themselves. And I'm just curious today, if you're undecided today, are you seeking to be pure? Because mankind goes to all measure of means to try to purify his soul from his guilty conscience. And just as a Jew could not truly be purified by the blood of a bull or a goat or an animal, it was simply foreshadowing Christ, you can never be purified. If you're looking and you're undecided and you want to be pure, look no further than Jesus Christ. Look to Christ, who alone is able to cleanse you of your sins. If you're undecided, will you be purified? The second question is, will you look for Jesus? Will you look for him? Verse 56, there were those who were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? And so we see here that these Jews were very interested in talking about what others thought about Jesus. What do you think about this miracle-working man who claimed to be the Messiah? They knew that Jesus had done many signs. They knew that he claimed to be the Son of God. They knew that the religious leaders regularly debated Jesus in public, and they were put to shame. And now they know the tension is mounting, and so they had heard about how Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And what would the chief priests and the Pharisees say about this? What will they do with Jesus now? And so naturally, the questions were being asked, what do you think? Will Jesus even come to the feast at all? And if you're here this morning and you may still be undecided, let me ask you the same question. What do you think? What do you think about the signs that Jesus performed? What do you think about the claims that he made? What do you think about the way that he was treated? What do you think about the fact that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Are you looking for Jesus? And if you are, the place to find him is right here in the word. There is the revelation of Jesus Christ in the scripture. And you will not find Jesus in the Book of Mormon. And you will not find him in the Watchtower magazine. And you will not find him in the Apocrypha. And you will not find Jesus in the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. And you will not find Jesus in present-day Judaism. And you will not find Jesus in many wishy-washy churches that are in America. You will not find Jesus in any other religion. You will only find Jesus in the Bible. Are you looking for him here? Last question, will you follow 
the culture, verse 57, the chief priest and the Pharisees had even given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. No doubt these Pharisees had the Jews under their thumb. No doubt they would treat them just like they did the man born blind and his family threatening to kick them out of the synagogue if they didn't obey their beckoning command. And the command was, if you see Jesus, let us know where he is. So these Jews had to make a choice. Are they going to follow their spiritual leaders or are they going to follow Christ? What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with the culture that wants you to get rid of Christ? The culture wants you to kill Jesus and remove him from your, from your, from your, from your life. They, they want Christ removed from the public square. But God has already exalted Jesus and given him a name that is above every name. And God has already established with Christ a kingdom that will never end. The culture wants you to get rid of Jesus, but God has given you Jesus. He's given you Christ, who's given you the keys to the kingdom. The culture wants you to arrest Jesus and throw him in prison, but God wants us to adore Jesus and to bow down and worship him as Lord of all. John 11 reveals the deity of Jesus Christ and the utter depravity of the human heart. In Luke 16, the rich man in Hades had argued if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. But Lazarus did come back from the dead and the officials wanted to kill him. Miracles certainly reveal the power of God, but of themselves they cannot reveal the grace of God. The resurrection of Lazarus, like the rest of Christ's life and ministry, forces people to make a decision about him. What decision will you make? Will you melt like wax, or will your heart be hardened like clay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to spend some time here this morning in your word, just looking at the aftermath of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And we've just seen so clearly this morning how that same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. This, this miracle of Christ caused some of these Jews to see Christ as the Son of God and to repent and to believe in him. And this same miracle caused others to hate him even more and to want him to be killed and there's those who are still undecided, just talking about, what do you think? What do you think about Jesus? God, I pray that you would use this passage to speak to our hearts this morning, and that we would want to come near to where Jesus is, and that we would want to see all that he does, and we would want to listen and hang on every word, and that we would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be so kind and gracious as to grant salvation to those that you chose in Christ before the foundation of the world, that they would be made holy and blameless by the blood of Christ. Melt the wax, we pray, God. Soften our hearts. Draw us into your kingdom. Allow us to worship you with hearts that have been renewed to see Christ, the Son of God, full of glory, drawing us nearer and nearer to worship him. Be exalted in our hearts and in our worship this day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.